listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Well, pitter-patter, let's get at her, shall we? Election time. The rip has been dropped so hard, it's shattered in a million places. It's done. The writ has been destroyed. It's been left out in the rain like MacArthur's Park. Oh, it all begins now. Plenty to chew over this next hour as our nation begins this process of electing a new government. It begins, as it always does, with a visit to the Governor General. Then that brisk walk up to the microphone and for the Prime Minister. Now, speaking as the leader of the Liberal Party, he gets the first kick at the can to try and define here what is the ballot question. We've all got a choice to make. Keep moving forward and build on the progress we've made or go back to the politics of the Harper years. Yes, that nefarious Stephen Harper. He has ruled us for too long, I say. Wait a minute, what? Oh, right. Of course, there's a bit of news to kick it all off. Little SNC-Lavalin. A little how come you're not letting your government ministers and aides and all the people on in the know talk about this scandal, Mr. Prime Minister. And that was the first, the very first question that Justin Trudeau faces. Here it is. Here's his answer to what is a burning central question about whether or not he should be given another mandate to govern this country. We... Uh gave out uh, the largest and most expansive waiver of cabinet confidence in Canada's history. And that was that. I'm serious. That was it. We gave out a waiver. What do you want? Waivers all around. What? And here's the deal. It doesn't matter. Sure, it matters on a lot of levels. But does it matter to the electorate? I don't think so. And I don't think it's going to reverberate. And here's why. If you can say a thing like, we give out the most expansive waiver in Canadian history, and nobody challenges you, as like, the, well, first of all, nobody understands what the hell that means. And uh, whatever. Move on. Now, what about the fact that we started today? Anybody check the calendar? A little something called 9-11? How's about this one for a little hot potato here, Mr. Trudeau? Is this not a bit of an insensitive date for the official launch of the Canadian election campaign? We remember uh, all the families, uh, all the individuals lost and the families affected by the terrible, terrible attacks of September 11, 2001. Uh, and uh, we uh, move forward in pledging ourselves every day to a better, safer, uh, more prosperous society for everyone. And that's what this election is all about. Yeah, we're moving forward. We're just moving right on forward from history. Doesn't matter. Here's the other thing. I don't think this one plays either. I don't think it's a big deal. Because we wouldn't really, like, you know, if anything else had happened on this day, we wouldn't say, well, what, is, what are you doing that for on this day, this, this solemn day? And it is a solemn day. But I don't think he wears anything negative from that. I don't, that's my feeling on that one. But what I want to do now is I want to dig through a couple of more of the short answers that the Prime Minister, that Mr. Trudeau, gives outside of Rideau Hall this morning to get a bit of a sense of the theme that you're going to hear in the early going and talk about talking points. And we're also going to listen from the other leaders and talk about their talking points and who's got the best talk of the talking points. Well, Mike Van Solen, 
He's with Navigator, and he's on the line, and here's a guy who knows how to talk about talking points. Hey, Mike. Alan, great to join you. Let's key it up here. Here is a central question that Mr. Trudeau will face again and again. The question, why should Canadians trust you again? We are the first to recognize there's an awful lot more to do, and I'm very much looking forward to getting out and talking with Canadians from coast to coast to coast over the coming weeks about our plans to continue building a better Canada as we all move forward. Mike, he wants to talk to you. How's he doing on that answer? I think that's what he has. Uh, It is difficult for them to really lean into their record and say, you know, they can't say promises made, promises kept. They have to say, we are generally nice people. Hey, Canadians, don't you like us? Let us uh, keep moving forward. We didn't accomplish everything, but, you know, we're earnest and and we're, we we mean well, and we're going to, we're going to keep at it. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's what we're getting from Mr. Trudeau today. He's going to double down on the environment. He's going to talk about, uh, you know, we'll see. Well, you know, actually, I don't know, but I, I expect he'll want to talk about gender uh, parity uh, again, even though there might be a few chinks in his armor in that respect. Uh, he's going to talk about First Nations uh, reconciliation. But again, there's, you know, a few chinks in the armor. So he's going to have to bob and weave a bit to sell Canadians on the idea that, hey, uh, I may not be perfect, uh, but, you know, I'm not Stephen Harper, and, and well, you know, leave that aside. Uh, but, uh, but, but you know, give me another chance. I'm not John Diefenbaker. Gosh yeah. darn it, I'm not Diefenbaker. I'm uh, well-meaning. I'm well-meaning, and I, and I look good. That's the opposite. But, uh, okay, here's the next one. This one is uh, same question, but posed for millennials. In other words, what do you say to those millennials out there who believed you last time around when you said you'd be different and then found out that you're precisely the same, Mr. Trudeau? I think uh, Canadians uh, of all ages, particularly millennials, have seen the transformation of our country over the past four years as we've uh, both uh, created economic growth and lifted people out of poverty, as we've moved forward on uh, the most ambitious Uh, leadership ever seen by a Canadian government on protecting the environment at the same time as we continue to prepare for future prosperity for families right across the country. That is the Prime Minister speaking this morning about always forward, never upwards, never backwards, never sideways, always (laughs) upwards and onwards. Mike, what do you think about that one? Uh, I, I am not sure where the millennials will fall on this. You know, clearly they like the progressive agenda in general, uh, whoever may offer it. We will see whether the NDP or the Greens can actually uh, grab some of that millennial vote. The Conservatives, of course, will have something to say about it. But uh, I, I think, again, Trudeau has to uh, hope that people don't look at his record too closely, generally think, you know, here's a well-meaning guy, uh, you know, who's who's not going to do really bad, who who cares about the environment, at least says a lot of great things about the environment. And, uh, you know, he legalized marijuana, for crying out loud. How bad can he be? How bad uh, can you be? Let's, let's uh, give him another chance. All right, Michael, we want to get, we got three more to get through here as we zip through the opposition, because sure. I want to just listen to key talking points here. This is the conservative leader, Andrew Scheer who has decided to make day one about SNC-Lavalin. Here he is speaking from the conservative Shearer. 
We're going to be outlining our vision for the country to put more money back in the pockets of Canadians and let them get ahead. But what today shows is that you just cannot trust Justin Trudeau. He will say anything to cover up his scandals and he'll say anything to get re-elected and Canadians cannot believe uh, the things that he says. Can't believe him. He's a fibber. Liar, liar, pants on fire. That going to stick? Yeah, well, we'll find out if it sticks, but two key things in that. One, affordability, uh, more money in your pocket. He's really hoping that, uh, you know, despite what economists might say and pointing at GDP and, and, and all these other numbers that, that says, hey, Canadians, you're doing better. He's counting on Canadians, uh, you know, not feeling as flush as, as, you know, the economists might suggest. So one, affordability, uh he, he, he's zeroing in on that, and he very much wants to persecute or prosecute the, the record of the Liberal government over the last four years. He wants somehow to find a way to make SNC stick and the other sort of foibles that they've had over, over their, t- their time. So We're almost out of time. I've got to get moving okay, on here. Here, next up, the sure. leader with the lowest expectations and somehow the most to lose. Anybody interested in a little populism? Check out Jugmeet Singh this morning in London, Ontario. And we can provide a relief for Canadians who are paying some of the highest costs in the world for cell phones and internet services. We can do that, but only if we have the courage to take on the big telecom lobbyists. Oh, let's take on the telecom lobby, the big evil telecoms. I'm going to pivot quickly from there to also to Elizabeth May, who just finished speaking. What's her key message? The whole world could depend on Canadian leadership if only we got our act together, because right now we are laggards. So what's different from last time? Well, for one thing, we have a lot more Greens elected across Canada. Official opposition in Prince Edward Island. Paul Manley elected in Nanaimo Ladysmith. We have a stronger base across this country with more volunteers ready to elect Greens in New Brunswick, in Nova Scotia, in Prince Edward Island, in Quebec, and a lot in British Columbia. So we're pretty excited. Mike, last word to you. Cage match between the populism grasping of Singh and a rolling green May. Who wins there? Really tough to say. I think they both have the ability to shoot themselves in the feet and choose poor strategy throughout. We hear, uh, you know, Jugmeet has struggled. He's talking about affordability and getting at it in a different way there. If the Greens can be disciplined and strategic and smart, I think they have an opportunity to actually upset the NDP as a third party. But it's going to be a long campaign, and they have a lot of days uh, in which to, uh, you know, stick their foot in their mouth. So we will see. Mmm, tasty shoe leather. Mike Van Zolen from Navigator. Always appreciate you being on the program. Take care, Alan. back to the uh, program. So glad that you could spend some time with us. Uh, Bianca Andrescu is back in town. Just held a news conference just a little while ago at Tennis Canada talking about her experience winning the U.S. Open and was asked, what have you, you been up to to celebrate? What's been going on with you lately? I actually went to the Yorkdale yesterday. That was my first stop and I've been getting more recognized than usual. Um, and I came in today, Tennis Canada, gave me a very warm welcome, which I really appreciate. So thank you guys. Um, So yeah, I think it's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. I think going to Yorkdale is going to be a different experience for Bianca going forward. She's not going to be able to just wander up to the Orange Julius. Do they still have the Orange Julius? I don't think they do. I don't. 
I don't think that exists anymore. I'm dating myself. Mike Arsenault is a global news reporter who has been covering Bianca and her meteoric rise and has a real connection to the family. He's one of the first reporters to actually cover her and joins me on the line. Hi, Mike. Alan, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. I want to play this one for you because this got me excited. Bianca asked this morning about whether or not she'd like to play in the Olympics. Yeah, I've been thinking about playing the Olympics for uh, a couple of years. I... uh think it's a very special event. Um, you get to be a part of a, a team, and I think it's different than any other tournament on the tour. So if I do get to play that, then it would be pretty awesome. That has got to be exciting for sports fans and tennis fans and just Canadians as general, just not only the future that this young woman has, but the thought of her being able to, you know, represent the flag at the Olympics, Mike, that's pretty exciting. For sure. I mean, it's the patriotism shown by not just Bianca, but Felix Auger-Alain-Sim and Denis Shapovalov. They're so proud to be Canadian. What they've been able to do for the sport in Canada is really incredible, and I think we're definitely going to see a huge tennis bump over the coming years. I mean, I was at a wedding for the final on Saturday, and you wouldn't believe the number of people, not tennis fans, not sports fans, but it really transcended the culture, what Bianca was able to do over the weekend. You know, it's it's been an amazing year this year. The things that we've discovered as Canadians that we love, it turns out we like basketball, and it turns out that we also really enjoy tennis, Mike. I think this has come as a shock to many of us. Well, who knew? It's not just uh, hockey sticks and hockey pucks, right, Alan? We're just a, a frigid winter wonderland but yeah it's, i mean we've had we've had this talent in in other sports before i really think this kind of goes back to vancouver in 2010 remember we had the own the podium that was our that was our mantra and that's kind of i think really when we had a a switch in just how we approach sports instead of just happy to be here we're like you know what we have some of the best athletes best athletes in the world we can compete for world championships we can compete for olympic games not just in curling and hockey but in every sport imaginable we have some great talent here in the great white uh, great white north mike so much has been made about bianca and her mental strength and her ability to concentrate and what what do we know do we know anything about how she goes about that and just being able to calm herself down and more importantly is it available in a pill Hey, if, if that was the case, Alan, I'd be a much better tennis player myself. But no, um, what it comes down to Bianca is really just she uses uh, visualization techniques, and she's worked with a sports psychologist before, so that kind of has really helped her in the mental aspect. And I'd argue that tennis is not just extremely physically demanding, but it's mentally demanding. You're out there by yourself, 23,000 people in Arthur Ashe Stadium. Serena wins four games in a row to tie it at five, and Bianca's still able to keep things quiet internally, win those final two games to become the U.S. Open champion. But in terms of how she's been able to do this, I think when you think back to how many setbacks she's had in her career, I mean, she had a leg ankle injury in her early teens. In 2017, she was dealing with a back issue. Last year, she had residual effects from her back issue around the Rogers Cup. Her shoulder, she missed two and a half months this year. So I think she's just had the ability to face adversity, and I think that gives her the kind of quiet inner confidence to persevere when she faces faces adversity now. It is remarkable to see in such a young person such poise. Mike, thank you so much for being on the program. 
Thanks, Alan. Anytime. Mike Arsenault is a global news reporter who has covered Bianca Andreescu's rise, meteoric rise, to stardom and to the top of the tennis world, now ranked fifth in the world. An update on what's going on in our education system. You may have heard of this in the news. The uh, Elementary Teachers Federation now says it will hold a central strike vote in late September and through October. That central strike vote takes place uh, at member information information meetings. And basically, this is a step forward to what is largely seen as coming labor strife within the education system. However, we're a ways off yet. No need to press the panic button. I'm just giving you an update on what's going on on that front. But with students and parents going to social media to talk about how big class sizes have been since school opened last week, there are reports that some Toronto schools now have more than 40 students per class. And the Toronto District School Board says it's aware of the issue but maintains it. this is just a temporary issue. Global's Dave Woodard has more. The school board says there are isolated incidents where there are more than 40 students in some classes, but that's not necessarily due to the cuts. Spokesman Ryan Bird says one of the reasons for the overcrowding is students not registering. Sometimes we don't know that students are arriving at a school. Another reason for high school students, this is the week they want to change schedules. But Bird maintains a fix is on the way. In the next few weeks, uh, a lot of these classes, if not all, will begin to normalize. He says the board held back 80 teachers at the beginning of the school year, They'll start recalling them back once they know exactly how many students have been affected. Dave Woodard, Global News. Ryan Bird from the TDSB joins me on the line now. Hi, Ryan. Good afternoon, Alan. Thanks so much for being on the program. Give parents, and I know there's many of them out there who are concerned when they're seeing these class sizes, how long will this take to normalize? I figure another few weeks. So on the secondary level, um, what we do is we wait to get all of our enrollment data at the end of the third week. And that sounds like, well, why are you waiting so long? I get that. But what we try to do is, as indicated in Dave's report, is that because the opening weeks are the time where high school students are moving around courses, maybe dropping one, picking up another, that kind of thing, we try to do it at the earliest opportunity of when it's settled down. So that's why we will they'll submit their enrollment uh, info, the numbers of students, at the end of the third week. And then our staff then look at that and say, okay, there are X number of students more than we had anticipated, or there are more students in this class and less than the other. And then that's when we can staff accordingly. The same goes for elementary schools. Uh, you know, I know when I was a kid, I had to go through a realignment uh, in the opening weeks of school where you know, let's say they, they anticipate there will be hypothetically 60 grade ones at a large school, and it turns out they have 68, or maybe they have less. We look at all that information in the opening weeks, and then we can adjust staffing. Maybe it's adding teachers, maybe it's just reorganizing some classes so they fit better, um, but usually it's taken care of in the opening weeks. The the. I don't think there'd be so much concern about this, but obviously we have a change in provincial government yeah, in terms absolutely. and all of that. So I, I, I guess my question is, is how do parents, because it's so difficult, because you, you have the union saying one thing and you have the you know, school board says one thing else and the province says, well, it's not a big deal. So how do we get to some sort of truth? And should we just ignore it until mid-October and, and then reassess? Well, so we look at the data. So, like, you know, I know that there's a lot of talk right now, given the provincial changes and that kind of thing. I do get that, that people are looking at larger class sizes, especially at the secondary level, uh, and saying, well, this is because of the changes. We actually don't know yet. 
Um, we really need all of that enrollment data to be submitted. We look at the number of teachers, we look at the kids uh, and all the numbers, and then we'll have a better idea to say, okay, this is higher than it's ever been. It's the same as last year. It's less than last year. But until we get that hard data, honestly, we can't say for sure what the cause is. So in the meantime, what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, assuage any concerns from parents and students that we're on it, we know it, it shouldn't be classes of more than 40. Um, but in many cases, we just want to reiterate that we typically deal with this every year. We don't yet know if it's worse this year, but we typically deal with this every year, and we're doing the best we can to make sure that this is all normalized as quickly as possible. Ryan Bird is with the Toronto District School Board. Ryan, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Alan. So you're just going to have to wait with the outrage. You're just going to have to put the outrage just to the side for just one moment, and then we're going to have to just wait and see on the class sizes. And it's just... Unfortunately, the way that I mean, sometimes we want to be mad now, but you can't. You got to wait to be mad. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And of course, we are off to the races in that federal election campaign. And if you're checking, if you're doing any scoring on day one, where are we? Well, a poll released just hours before Trudeau fired the old starting gun, put conservative support at 35%, liberals at 34%. That's a tie. NDP and Greens also tied at 11. And then Maxime Bernier, his People's Party, bringing up the rear with just 3%. So we have a ways to go, but those are the numbers out of the starting gate, if you put a whole lot of faith into them. I I think that's a parked vote. I don't know. I think that there is an enormous amount of volatility in the electorate and the thing to watch is where's Quebec going? Because I think we have a sense, you know, I think one or two choices in terms of Ontario and where the 905 is going to go. I don't think they're not going to go solidly NDP. The, uh, you know, the Greens might pick up a couple, but it'll be a question between liberals and it'll be a question between conservatives and then how the, the split works. But that's something to keep your eye on. Let's take you to South Carolina, where a couple combing a South Carolina beach after Hurricane Dorian thought that they had discovered a large rock, but soon realized they had stumbled upon an unbelievable bit of history. Two Civil War-era cannonballs lodged in the sand. And actually, this is not that unusual. Following 2016's Hurricane Matthew... 16 cannonballs washed up at the same beach. In South Florida, a woman in Miami who claimed to be a psychic fortune teller has been sentenced to three years and four months in prison for taking $1.6 million from a Texas woman to remove a curse from her family. Apparently, she gained the woman's trust, convinced her that a curse had been placed on her and her family. She claimed she needed large sums of money for crystals and candles to perform meditations that would lift the curse. Crystals and candles. I live in the beaches part of Toronto. There are several stores, I think, that just sell only that. 
crystals, and candles. Still a going business, folks. Get yourself your crystal. Get yourself your candle. Get rid of your curse. At least six people in the United States have died, and nearly 500 others have fallen ill with a serious lung disease that has been linked to vaping products, and that's prompted officials there to suggest people stop using e-cigarettes altogether. Now, no cases have been reported in Canada, but officials here say they are watching the situation closely. And many health experts say the lung disease outbreak is a potent reminder that e-cigarettes are not, are not harmless. But the question is, just how harmful are they? Carly Weeks is a journalist with the Globe and Mail and has written about this in today's paper and joins me on the line. Hi, Carly. Hey, how are you? I'm well. What do we really know about what's in these vape pens? Not a lot. And this is why there's so much concern that has been mounting in recent weeks and months, particularly in light of these hundreds of illnesses and some deaths in the United States. So one thing that we do know for sure is that whatever people are inhaling into their lungs is not harmless. And for a long time, I think people were sort of bought into this message that e-cigarettes were somehow harmless because, or safe simply because, you know, you're not ingesting, you know, the, these terrible carcinogenic chemicals that come with cigarettes. But now the message is that health experts are trying to get out there is that, you know, there's still a lot that we don't know about the long-term health effects and that you're ingesting substances that could be very damaging to you. What do we know about the prevalence of this mystery illness amongst young people? Right. I mean, it's there's still cases that uh, are being reported in the U.S. One thing that we do know is that they really do seem concentrated in the U.S. So I was speaking to an expert this week who suggested that, you know, if this was a really widespread problem that, you know, affected all sorts of vaping devices, that we would have seen cases in Canada and the U.K. and elsewhere by now. That's not to say we won't see cases pop up here, but there is a suggestion there that there seems to be some sort of contaminant or something that's gone wrong with either some of the liquid that people are consuming or some of the devices that they're using. So there's some problem there that, that officials, they haven't figured out what it is, but you know, hopefully it's something that they will figure out um, you know, is, is the cause very soon because the people who are affected in the U.S., you know, they're, very, they're often very young. They're the typical sort of vape user, you know, young. Young um, uh, males appear to be more affected than females, you know, uh, but there's really, um, you know, it's affected dozens of states. Uh, it's, it sort of appears to have popped up everywhere, and it is really scary. And so, you know, officials here are on the lookout, and, and hopefully we don't see many more cases of this at all. Adding extra concern to this, of course, is the fact that we are about to legalize vape products for THC. What do we know about mods? I've understood from some of the reporting that there is some concern that these are vape pens that have been modified, perhaps, to be able to ingest THC. Yes, yeah, and that's an important part of this discussion. So, you know, in Canada, there are no, at this point, legal uh, vape THC products. So in December, as you say, that will change. So some people say that could be a good thing because then you could have products that maybe are more regulated. Right now, people are purchasing things on the, quote, black market. You know, or, you know there's all kinds of um, products that you can get, and so you don't necessarily know what you're purchasing. Um, but there is an important conversation to be had. I was speaking to another expert this week who did say, you know, the the THC 
aspect of vaping is a concern because we know that when, um, as opposed to the dried herb, when you are putting um, any sort of edible product or, you know, uh, when we're talking about THC and edibles or things that can be ingested through an aerosol as vaping, that's how you, you do vape, it turns into an aerosol, you inhale in your lungs. There is a concern there because you're processing the product, you could be introducing more contaminants, there could be more of an opportunity there for problems to arise. And so there is this fear that this THC element um, could be a huge problem. Now, in the States, not everyone who's gotten sick was ingesting THC. We should just mention that. But a lot of them were. And so, you know, there does appear to be some connection there. I just don't quite know what it is yet. Carly Weeks is health reporter in the Globe and Mail. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. A new survey from the University of Ottawa. Fascinating. More than 1,600 educators were surveyed covering the 2017-2018 school year. 54% of them reported they had experienced physical violence, including punching, kicking, or biting, primarily at the hands of students. That's a much higher percentage than a survey conducted by three major unions found in 2005, That found only 7% of teachers had been victims of violence. The new research also found that 72% of educators reported verbal insults or obscene gestures from a student, and more disturbingly, 41% said they had similar encounters with parents. It's one thing when the kids are being rude, but when mom and dad show up and they're flipping the bird to the teacher, that... Is not good. Hey, how's your Wi-Fi right now? How many bars you got? Anybody? You got enough juice there to be able to get on all your social media platforms, swiping right all day long? Well, it depends where you live, whether or not that's true for you. If you live in a rural part of the province, it's a big deal. And not just because you can't get Tinder dates, folks. To talk more about the push for rural internet and why it should be on the federal election agenda, I'm joined by Alan Thompson, who's the chairman of the Rural Ontario Municipal Association, is on the line. Hi, Alan. Hi, how are you today? I'm good. How many bars you got? Uh, right now, I've got two. Okay. <laughs> tell, tell me, in, in Briefly, uh, as simply as you can, why is high-speed Internet so important to rural Ontario and rural Canada? Well, to me, uh, high-speed broadband is fundamental to everybody. It's a core of today's society, uh, like what hydro was 100 years ago, similar to telephone. And uh, to me, that's why it needs to be deemed as the same service that we need to connect all our communities and if it wasn't made a priority, hydro wouldn't be in the rural areas, especially in the up north, up north or where where people, you know, where the population is small. But it's necessary, right? So it's important. It isn't just about uh, Netflix anymore. It's about kids downloading their homework, uploading their homework. It's about businesses to be able to operate. We're way behind on our transportation abilities as far as subways, trains, highways, but if we can get people to work from home or work from their small communities and not have to travel, we can reduce gridlock quite quickly. And it's so cheap to do if we could just get it done. 
The Ontario government has promised $315 million. The federal government, if I'm looking at that federal grant, is $250 million. But, I mean, those numbers seem big, but when you talk about the outlay in infrastructure required to bring cell service to remote areas, that is a pittance. Yeah, well, you're looking at $22 billion to connect all of Ontario. $22 so, billion. Yeah. That's what it's going to take to, to, to go door-to-door everywhere. And the reality uh, of getting off, even a, a, a portion of that, what do you think that is, Alan? Well, to me, the portion about it is, is good. I appreciate that they're finally waking up to know that they need to put money towards this. But here's the other problem that we really need is we need the government and the, the private sector to all work together and share their services. We have lots of dark fiber through our communities in Ontario that are owned by Canadian Pacific, CN, Canadian National Railway. We also have uh, fiber that's owned by Hydro One and many others, and Bell Rogers own all their theirs independently. What we have to do, similar to Hydro, is everybody's got to share. Everybody gets a, they get a return on their investment. But what we got to do is get everybody to work together to share the services to connect their communities. Sounds like you're going to nationalize it there. It sounds like you're going to take over some private uh, investment <laughs> stuff and just take that over and say, I'm going to take that for the government. Well, you know, I don't know it's about taking it. Uh, they're going to get paid back on a, on a royalty. So it's not a, it, it's getting everybody to work together and everybody's pr- protecting their turf. The biggest loser is the, the taxpayer, and this is taxpayers' money that we're talking about here. But what we've got to do is get everybody working together. It's like Ford builds part of the highway so only Ford cars can travel on it. That's unacceptable. This is a, a necessary need for our country to be able to move forward. It works in every other part of the world. Um, one is, if we talk about private, I, I, I say, is it a private or is it a controlled monopoly? It's not a competitive market. Um, it's closed for a lot of other people that want to come in and build the fiber. Um, so to me, is I think we all have to work together is how do we serve all of Ontario? How do we connect all our communities so that we all benefit? And the payback and the return on the investment is huge. Yeah, the, the ratios that we looked at, the lowest payback we have working through uh, SWIFT, which is the Southwestern Integrated Fiber Technology that we're have putting in place, the lowest payback is for every dollar spent, you get eight in return. You know, a lot of it's up closer to 20. So that range, putting this kind of investment is important. Even our farmers today, the, mo- the, the, the farms today are, is, is called the wired farm. And basically, it doesn't matter if it's from livestock, to, uh, from milk production to pig production to crop production, everything's precision farming today. No, and, and you and you need and you need that access to be able to do all of that. I mean, otherwise, you, you know, you're basically you're you're farming in the last century when everybody else is competing with with 21st century tools. Uh, Alan Thompson is the chairman of the Rural Ontario Municipal Association, which is pushing for full broadband access throughout the rural portions of this province. Appreciate you being on the program, Alan. Thank you. Thank you. There's a, a new song out uh, for the Conservative Party. They dropped it this morning. I don't know if you've heard it. I think Kelly played a little bit on her program. And I just want to, before we tee it up, I want I want you to ask yourself, when you hear this song, who do you think of? Like, who is this song appealing to? Who is Andrew Shear saying, oh, I'm going to get funky with you right here, right now? You know, Andrew. 
Andrew Shear bought his first real six-string that summer. Should have known he'd never get far. Wait, wait, aren't we getting, are we going forward with Trudeau, but we're getting ahead with the conservatives? Who's, does this thing have reverse? This, this puts me in a mind of something. Can we just transition to this one, other end? Because that one was okay, but it, it has nothing on this. Remember this chestnut? Oh. people the Doug Ford campaign song all of those are better than the uh, Kathleen Wynne election that I covered I I covered a lot of that I was embedded in that uh, and that was where she just played Katy Perry this one loop from a Katy Perry song over and over and the roar you know the one I'm not gonna sing it for you I'm not gonna do that to you but it people would come away with a bit of a kind of a, a, a jitter almost a tick a facial tick after being to one of her things just because they just play and they just play that one bit over and over again but get used to that can we hit, hit that one that conservative one more time can we just hit because i want to is this not sound like a little got my first real six string right there off the top am i right i'm right let us not forget brian adams